We've covered this before, but it bears repeating. In August 1862, General James Henry Carleton wrote to Edward R.S. Canby, overall military commander for New Mexico. Carleton and his men were marching from Arizona into New Mexico to help with the fight against rebels on the western front of the Civil War. Unfortunately, Union victories had already managed to mostly drive the secessionists from the territory. So Carleton wrote to Canby and almost disappointedly said, quote, The gallantry of the troops under your command has left us nothing to do on the Rio Grande. End quote. And that was mostly true. Though there were still rumors of rebel plots to take back the Southwest, for Carleton and the California Column, their mission had gone from waging a war to occupying a territory. And that meant plenty of time for troops to truly soak in the Arizona experience. But uh, let's just say that a soldier's life in the Sonoran Desert in the mid-19th century was something of an acquired taste. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 49, All Somewhat Quiet on the Western Front. Welcome back, everyone. Last time we looked at the establishment of, and how to pronounce, the territory of Arizona's new capital, Prescott. I'm going to take a small break from the political action this week to catch up with the soldiers who were manning Fort Whipple and other locations around the new territory. Since 1862, the California Column had been instrumental in getting law and order up and running in Arizona, and it is their experience and reports back home that will help fuel some of the territory's growth in coming years. Like many who came out this way, they weren't exactly charmed by their surroundings at first glance. You'll find plenty of references to, quote, rugged terrain and, quote, gagging alkali dust, as well as stories of, quote, Plutonian heat, which is just a 19th century way of saying that it's as hot as hell. One soldier stationed at Fort Yuma, which no one would call Arizona's garden spot, wrote home in 1865 saying, quote, For heaven's sake, never come out this way if you can help it. You will surely melt. The thermometer is 112 in the shade every day with no wind, scorpions thick as molasses and flies still more. When we want to drink cool water, we have to boil it and drink it immediately or else it gets hotter. End quote you might have sensed just a little bit of hyperbole there. As soldiers spent more time in Arizona, though, their views softened, and they began writing home about rivers, picturesque mountains, herds of antelope, plenty of fish, and, oh, by the way, gold, gold, gold. Soldiers became involved in mining pretty early on, and not just on their own time and initiative. Author Andrew E. Massick relates that at least twice in 1863, orders came down for soldiers to go out prospecting. One of these orders came from Major David Ferguson, left in charge of Tucson, to Captain James Whitlock at Fort Bowie in Apache Pass, with the explanation of, quote, It is our duty to do all we can to develop the rich mineral resources of this country, end quote. 
The second of the two orders came from General Carlton himself, who ordered soldiers at Lynx Creek in the Greater Prescott area to wash and prospect, while their commander was to keep meticulous track of how much time they spent in these activities and how much gold it brought in. Reasoning that exploiting the territory's mineral wealth would help both develop Arizona and contribute monetarily to the war effort, Carlton even proposed having a quarter of all troops on a one-month furlough at any given time so they could prospect. The general also saw it as a way to stave off the temptation for men to desert. When the enlistments of the first round of volunteers in the California column ran out in 1864, there were a good many who stayed to work in the gold fields. According to Massick, between 1864 and 1866, former soldiers filed 828 mining claims in central Arizona. In May 1863, two infantry companies reestablished Fort Mojave off the Colorado River and would spend years gladly developing the area and the gold resources that lay all around it. Though there is no way to quantify their contributions, it's a pretty sure bet that these men and the reports they sent home to friends and relatives help popularize Arizona as a place to make their fortune. Unfortunately, though, the average soldier's existence wasn't all mining. There was actual soldiering to do, which many of the men did not care for. Now, generally, the first set of California volunteers had high spirits and good morale, with journalist and author J. Ross Brown recounting that the cavalry escort for himself and Charles Poston was of the highest caliber. The reciprocal to this, however, was that such escorts left officers shorthanded and were seen as a burden. One such officer said, quote, "'I'll come upon the military for every damn thing they want,' End quote. And specifically said Post in quote, is cross as a bear and terribly down on me and others. End quote. But as you might imagine from what you know of General Carlton, many men chafed a bit under the strict military discipline he imposed. During his 1862 march across Arizona, his general order number one was that men were prohibited from leaving their ranks unless they had specific leave from their company commander. General Order 6 said that, when in camp, no one could go more than 500 yards from their quarters without permission. Now, this last bit was to prevent any soldier from wandering off and getting ambushed by Apache, which was not entirely out of the realm of possibility. As you also can imagine, a soldier's day started with revelry at sunrise and continued through sunset, with little variation. And then we get into all the standard 19th century camp problems, such as diseases. Contaminated water and poor hygiene contributed to diseases such as dysentery. In southern Arizona, at places such as Tubac and Tucson, malaria became a reoccurring problem. Massick passes along a story from July 1863, where a captain asked to be relieved of duty at Tucson because of malaria, except he also said that seven other men had caught the disease as well, so his superiors decided they couldn't spare the captain with so many others already out. In 1866, the company stationed at Tubac could only muster one-tenth of all their men at roll call due to malaria. 
on top of disease was also a lack in supplies, caused by any number of factors, including a shortage of horses and mules, low water affecting the steamboats on the Colorado River, and also deficiencies up and down the whole supply chain. It didn't help that the soldiers in the quartermaster department were not above a little graft, illegally selling everything from government mules to uniforms to civilians for a tidy under-the-table profit. Now, the level of such backdoor shenanigans was about the normal for across the army, but Carlton and others would have to issue orders prohibiting any such sales. All of these problems caused individual rations to be cut. At one point, Major Ferguson in Tucson ordered that the daily pork rations only be given once every 10 days. Soldiers were often issued pemmican, the pounded dry beef jerky we know today, to live off of. But most of the volunteers found its quality severely lacking and nicknamed it pelican because it was almost impossible to identify what animal it had actually come from. However, one soldier stationed in Arizona said that the lack of good grub didn't compare to the complete lack of intellectual stimulation. This soldier said that only a copy of Robinson Crusoe and a few other novels were available, and had been passed around so many times that the text was in danger of disappearing from being thoroughly thumbed through. Here we also get the amusing line that some soldiers were so desperate for reading material that they did what others considered unthinkable. They cracked open the Bible. Masick tells us that we find morale and discipline failing the most during the long, tedious hours of standard garrison duty. During these long days, many of the volunteers, and we have to remember that they were volunteers and not career soldiers, ran afoul of their superior officers and the military way of life in particular. We have stories of courts martial for men being outright insubordinate because they felt they were equal to, and in many cases better than, the men leading them. One such volunteer received a sentence of 30 days hard labor and was fined $10 worth of pay for addressing a second lieutenant, quote, with words too obscene to repeat, end quote. In another case, an insubordinate soldier was sentenced to carry a 40-pound log on his shoulder in front of the guardhouse for three straight days. We also find orders being issued from time to time to prevent rowdy soldiers from having nasty run-ins with the locals. For example, in September 1862, an order came down that banned soldiers, quote, from trespassing upon or crossing cultivated fields or gardens of the citizens of this place without permission, end quote. Another order told soldiers they were not allowed to destroy fences or enclosures if they were foraging for brush and other building materials. It didn't help that Tucson, despite Carlton's best efforts, still had a reputation as a rough-and-tumble lawless town. One officer firmly believed that, of the 47 people buried in the local cemetery, only two had died of natural causes. One of the volunteers wrote home that much of the depredations attributed to the Apache were actually the work of cutthroats living in Tucson itself. But probably the worst part of being near an actual town was the steady supply of liquor. Soldiers in Arizona, especially around Tucson and Fort Yuma, like their brethren from time immemorial, 
were very fond of getting drunk. J. Ross Brown wrote, quote, Volunteer soldiers are stationed all over town, at the mescal shops, the monte tables, and the houses of ill fame, for the preservation of the public order, or go there of their own accord for that purpose, which amounts to the same thing. End quote. In June 1862, a garrison court-martial found that the number of men who showed up drunk to duty or parade had increased dramatically once they had made it to Tucson. Down in Fort Yuma, a soldier recounts how a captain leading a parade was so drunk that he fell flat on his face and had to be carried away by his own men. The higher-ups were always taking great pains to curb some of these excesses, especially because of a certain element of society that was always ready to hustle a soldier at the gambling hall or take advantage of one who drank to excess. Early state historian Thomas Farish says that when the Union troops first occupied Tucson, a man by the name of Charles O. Brown was given the privilege of being the only licensed gambling hall and saloon in town at the cost of $500 a month. The conditions were that Brown was not to sell to soldiers who were already drunk and to cut them off when they became intoxicated. Now, Farish does say that his only source for this deal was the testimony of Brown himself, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were true. Once Major Ferguson took over in Tucson, he issued orders in 1863 that absolutely prohibited gambling. Now, his successor, who took over in early 1864, relaxed the rules just a bit, allowing alcohol to be sold by the glass at select establishments and by the bottle at others. Gambling was only allowed at card houses of good repute. Still, garrison officers were always wary when it came to payday. If men were going to go on a drunken spree, gamble, or worse, desert, that was the time. This is also when the con men and thieves would be at their most active. Part of the problem was that payday could be extremely erratic for the California volunteers, with them often receiving between six months and a year's pay at a time. In 1862, Carlton ordered his officers not to pay their men until after they had left Fort Yuma, specifically so volunteers would not be too tempted by the vices found in Arizona City. Luckily, most of the men were stationed at outlying posts, where many of these vices were simply inaccessible. Which means, I suppose, now is the best time to report about that great vice that soldiers have also fallen for since time immemorial. That is to say, women. Most of the soldiers were pretty much starved for female companionship, as at the far-flung places, even um, women of the night were rare. But in places like Tucson and Fort Yuma, competition over the few women that were available was fierce. Masick writes, quote, Competition for the affections of an attractive senorita at a Tucson fandango resulted in a riot followed by arrest and a guardhouse full of bruised and battered soldiers. End quote. At one fort, the commanding officer noted that a shooting had occurred due to jealousy over a certain woman who was known to visit the garrison. Many soldiers wrote home about the licentious women that could be found hanging around the garrison posts, and many were quick to disparage the native and Mexican women in particular. 
though there is nothing different here than those camp followers in the main theater of the war back east. Masek says that it would be impossible to quantify the number of common-law marriages and cohabitations that happened between soldiers and local women, but a few men actually did fall in love and marry, either during their enlistment or after returning to Arizona following their discharge. We have the records of at least five men marrying Tucson women in the Cathedral of San Agustin between 1864 and 1867. These men had to obtain leave from their commanders to wed, though the army typically looked down on this type of fraternization. In the soon-to-be-formed Yavapai County, four volunteers married local women after their term of service came up, while along the Colorado River, another married the daughter of a prominent Hardyville businessman. Finally, there were men who went even further against the currents of the time and married women from the various native tribes. Masik lists three examples of soldiers marrying women from the Mojave, Akamel Odom, and Navajo tribes. Though these men were highly valued as interpreters and Indian agents, in general they were looked down upon by their fellow white soldiers, who derisively called them squaw men. Remember, 19th century attitudes towards race are still alive and well, and many were simply aghast at the thought of any white soldier debasing himself to marry a Mexican girl or, horror of horrors, a Native American. Corporal Aaron Hitchcock wrote home to his parents, quote, Once in a while we hear of a soldier marrying a Spanish girl. I tell you what it is, I will die single before I disgrace the whites so much as to marry one of those that live in this country. End quote. However, a soldier's life wasn't all carousing, drinking, discipline, and monotony. The volunteers were contributing much to the development of the territory. Back in episode 42, I mentioned that Carlton had ordered maps be drawn of the territory as part of his systematic attempt to clean up Arizona after his arrival. The responsibility for this fell on the shoulders of Captain Alan L. Anderson, who took an escort of California volunteers to explore both in Arizona and New Mexico. He also interviewed and added details based on the travels of other officers who had gone deep into uncharted native territory. Carlton was pleased with Anderson's map, declaring it, quote, much more correct than any other map of the country hitherto published, end quote. During this same time, Major Ferguson in Tucson would produce a detailed map of the Old Pueblo, which according to Masick is the first time the town's layout had been depicted since the Spanish first occupied the area in the previous century. Volunteers were also involved in another monumental effort, namely vastly improving transportation across the territory. Down at Fort Yuma, high bluffs had meant wagon masters had to double-team their wagons to get goods up the steep grade from the river to the Gila Trail. Volunteers were tasked with cutting the bank and regrading the route to make it easier for soldier and civilian alike. In the latter years of the war, the California volunteers would also work on a variety of roads, such as blazing a route from Las Vegas to Fort Mojave, Fort Whipple to the Colorado River, Fort Goodwin and the Salt River, and from Maricopa Wells on the Gila to the newly established Fort McDowell in the Salt River Valley. These men eventually improved hundreds of miles of trails, not to mention also building bridges, 
digging wells, and establishing supply depots. During all this, though, they did not forget their original purpose, staying alert for any sign of rebel activity. Now, the Confederates have pretty much been a non-factor in our story since 1862, when after the defeat at the Battle of Glorieta Pass and other setbacks, they had to retreat back to Texas. We covered that back in episode 40. And this is when General Carleton complained that the troops in New Mexico had driven the Confederates out so decisively that it left him and his California volunteers really nothing to do. But that didn't mean rebel sympathizers were gone, or that the Confederacy had given up their dreams of retaking both Arizona and a path toward California. In episode 44, I mentioned the La Paz incident, where William Frog Edwards ambushed three soldiers, killing two and seriously injuring another. At the end of May 1863, so shortly after the La Paz incident, Captain Joseph Tuttle in Tucson received orders to head off a group of 15 to 20 secessionists said to have stolen livestock in San Bernardino, California, and were heading to join with the rebel army in Texas. Taking a detachment of men, Tuttle tracked these raiders down to the Sonoran town of Altar, where he was able to capture them and recover the livestock. In late November 1864, the overall commander for the Department of the Pacific received an alarming letter from a mine owner. According to this letter, the owner had it on good authority that a group of heavily armed Texans were assembling in Sonora for an attack on southern Arizona. At the same time, a government detective said a group of 32 men, members of the not-so-secret pro-slavery society called the Knights of the Golden Circle, had left San Diego for Texas, and that daily known rebels were slipping away east under false pretenses. The thought was that if Abraham Lincoln won his re-election bid, the rebels would strike to take back Arizona. Now, there could have been truth to some of these rumors, because it is true that the rebels were still plotting to take back the Southwest. And many of the plotters are people we've actually already met. As early as 1862, as Confederate forces were falling back to Texas, a man named Spruce McCoy Baird, the former attorney general for New Mexico, said New Mexico and Arizona were, quote, really the bone of contention in this war, and, quote, our way to the Pacific should at all hazards be secured, end quote. Baird began to recruit men, joining in on an effort already being led by our old acquaintance, Colonel John R. Baylor, to raise five companies that he was calling the Arizona Brigade. Despite reports that hundreds would flock to the rebel banner should something go down, Baylor was able to only gather a portion of what he expected. And this is really the point where his Native American extermination order, which we talked about in episode 40, came back to bite him. By the end of 1862, Confederate President Jefferson Davis had learned about Baylor's command to lure Apaches in by deceit and then kill them all, and removed him. The men that had gathered were then sent east to shore up defenses along the border with Louisiana. At the same time, rumors were flying of Confederates gathering across Arizona, or just south of the border in Sonora and Chihuahua. These rumors involved Dan Showalter, a southern sympathizer who had tried to sneak out of California, but had been one of those caught and jailed in Fort Yuma. 
he had eventually been released after taking Carlton's loyalty oath, though that didn't seem to do much good. Despite rumors of his being in Mexico, he actually made it to Texas, where he started recruiting. Baird also continued to work on the project of raising forces to take Arizona and New Mexico. On February 14, 1863, the 2nd anniversary of the Declaration of the Confederate Territory of Arizona, Showalter met at the Manger Hotel in San Antonio with a group of Arizona expatriates, including Granville Aury, brother of the future mayor of Tucson and the once delegate to the Confederate Congress. This group requested $20,000 to arm and equip an expedition. Their plan was for Showalter to lead a group of 100 men, ostensibly heading toward the Colorado River goldfields, but in reality would gather outside Tucson. They would then take the town, head to the goldfields, where they hoped to recruit 500 more men, then destroy Fort Yuma and link up with rebel sympathizers in Southern California. However, this plan was never given any official authorization. Meanwhile, Baird, still begging President Jefferson Davis to not give up on the Southwest, was actually given permission to harass supply wagons between Missouri and Santa Fe in order to weaken Union troops for a possible invasion. This plan caught the ear of Captain James Tevis, then stationed in Arkansas. We met Tevis back in episode 34, where he was a Butterfield station manager in Apache Pass. He's the one who declared that Cochise was the biggest liar in the territory. After the war broke out, he became a second lieutenant in the Confederate Army and helped Captain Hunter's company take Tucson. He was still leading what was left of Hunter's company when he heard about Baird and he begged to be sent west to help take back Arizona. He wrote his superior saying, quote, We are all ready to fight four years longer, even if the government never gives us any clothing or pays us a dollar. I think we will be the last men to give up. End quote. Unfortunately for Tevis, his request was denied, and unfortunately for Baird, his raids were not considered anything more than a nuisance by General Carleton in New Mexico. Next up, we have Lansford W. Hastings, a former California judge and ex-postmaster of Arizona City, who proposed his plan. This involved raising some 3,000 to 5,000 men in California, some of which would land at Guaymas and then strike from the south, and some of which would pose as miners and then strike Fort Yuma from the north. He would later have to temper his estimates and expectations, but was actually given something of a green light from the Confederate Secretary of War. However, nothing would really come from his plan, but a similar one would be proposed by David S. Terry, a former California Supreme Court justice, Texan, and soldier in the Eastern Theater of the War. Because it was so similar to Hastings' plan, nothing came from this, even after Terry petitioned again in 1864 and rightly pointed out that Hastings had done nothing. But the Confederacy still would entertain notions of taking back Arizona, including another plot by Palantine Robinson. Robinson was an ardent supporter of the rebel cause, and had advocated secession so forcefully that he was one of those rounded up by Carleton and sent to Fort Yuma. He then, with fingers crossed behind his back, I'm sure, swore loyalty to the Union, was released, 
slip down into Mexico, and then back to Texas. Robinson claimed that in northern Mexico was a good deal of men who had left California, but ran out of funds to make it to Texas. If the government would promise money and an escort, they would be able to recruit thousands. Though Robinson and his allies went into Mexico with high hopes, they were being watched by U.S. consuls in the country, and the support from the Confederacy never materialized. Our next contender is none other than Major Sherrod Hunter, the former captain who had taken Tucson once upon a time. Seriously, these Confederate plotters are a who's who's list of notable Arizona rebels. In early 1864, Hunter was tapped to take 10 reliable men into Arizona and recruit a regiment of the locals. He actually sent one of his reliable men, who had mined in Arizona, to enter the territory. Meanwhile, he gathered 300 men at Fort Duncan in western Texas. But the logistics of getting them to Tucson were too overwhelming, and this invasion never happened. But Hunter was not discouraged, and in early 1865, he went to the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, where he even linked up efforts with Baylor, who was still intent on taking back the territory. Hunter received permission to keep his effort alive, though the Confederacy was a little distracted by this point. Meanwhile, the man he had sent west had made it to San Francisco, and then into Nevada, where he found sympathizers willing to join an invasion from the west. Unfortunately, an informant blew the whistle, and he was forced to flee. Though this man would join another group wanting to take back Arizona, it never did receive backing. Finally, we come again to Baylor, who thought he could take Arizona with only 5,000 to 10,000 men, who were dispersed across Arizona, Mexico, and California. He also recommended that the rebels induce the Amerindian tribes living on the plains to attack Union supply wagons, to force the U.S. to send military resources there, and leave Arizona and New Mexico underdefended. Baylor was actually given authorization to recruit men in Texas on March 25, 1865. But by the time he got to Texas, Robert E. Lee had already surrendered and support evaporated in the resulting breakdown of the Confederacy. L. Boyd Finch, writing in the Journal of Arizona History, noted the determination to take back Arizona, but, quote, The plans of the Arizonans in exile seemed to require more men, more money, and more impetus than the Confederacy could supply. Had the many schemes concocted in San Antonio reached fruition, more men would have died and more distress would have fallen on the inhabitants of the frontier. End quote. We're going to leave it here this week. I had hoped to cover the last years of the California Volunteers in Arizona and wrap up Carleton's command, but that will have to wait for another episode. But join me next week as we turn our attention back to politics and find some more familiar faces cropping up in the Arizona Territory's first legislature. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.